This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Okay, okay. <laughs> right, it goes like this. Check it. Do, do, cha, do, 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 cha, do. My name's Hamilton and I'm here to say I write legislation all night and day. Hooray! That's basically how the musical goes. How much of Hamilton how much of Hamilton is rapping? Uh it's 85%. And it's very, very bad because the structure of every two bars is identical. And because Lynn Manuel Miranda um, isn't a rapper. Um, he thinks that he just needs to fit it like a million syllables in every line. And because I'm fairly sure the only rap song he's ever heard is Eminem's "Lose Yourself," there's like like the like the lead single from the musical is called like "I'm Not Throwing Away My Shot," and they. And it's a musical that has really great strengths in that it returns to musical themes through it. But often it's like, guys, a little bit more of a remember how to start. We weren't going to throw away my shot. Ooh, here comes the your favorite song. But no, look, really, there's like one actual rapper that, like Clipping. Clipping's how you pronounce it, isn't yes. it? Yes. Oh, give me, sorry. Yeah, clipping's so, Sorry, give me one sec, puppets. Just trying to get out. Yeah, cool, cool. Oh, Shag's out of the room. I tend to do heaps of crazy stuff, you guys. So while he's gone, don't let him know that I've completely flipped everything around on him. Clipping. So Clipping plays Lafayette in the first act and then plays Jefferson in the second act. And it's sort of awkward because he so like thoroughly outclasses every single other musician in it. And there's, there's this one, there's this one actor who in the first act plays this character called Hercules Mulligan, who's like obviously set up to be as like, oh guys, it's the crowd favorite Hercules Mulligan. Get, get ready. <laughs> And he does that thing that really um, inexperienced rappers do of like yelling too loud. And so he gets kind of tired. And so there's this one moment where it turns out Hercules Mulligan has successfully infiltrated the British or something. And it's like, oh, guys, you'll never guess who he had. And it's like, Hercules Mulligan, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes out super enthusiastic. And he's edit, like, yelling and really like sort of popping and sounding terrible in the audio. And his enthusiasm fades, like an energy fades really quickly. It's super, like... It's sort of like, I know, like, my problems with the musical pretty much stem from making fun of a genre I take quite seriously, but it also poking fun about how inexpertly executed some of it is, is, uh, is good shenanigans too. So speaking of callbacks to last week's episode, 
Mm. I was going to ask you, and in fact, I did ask you about your haircut anecdote, and we didn't get there because you told me an anecdote that was just somebody told you their opinion <laughs> of something. So please, Pete, tell me, tell me what happened when you had your most recent haircut. As we just to do a further callback, I'm trying to be a better person than I was in the past, and so I'm trying to move through life in a way that I'm not so on fire all the time. And so my previous attitude to haircuts that I think we covered in episode eight mm. or nine was I hate this, this is fucked, get me out of here, this is a waste of money, this is dumb, I hate this, stop touching me, don't like people in my space, don't like it, no. And so I've tried to get my head around what your hairdresser would have told you about, about the solemn duty of taking responsibility for how someone looks as they project themselves out into the world. And I was like, well, that's that's very mature and positive and mindful. And I was like, I'm going to go get my hair cut today. It's going to be time that I spend on me and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to be self-reflective and I'm going to be present. I'm not going to just put in headphones or try to sleep. Normally I just try to sleep. And I is the first time I'd gone to this hairdresser. Very cheap. $20. Yeah, what's up? Um, and she explained that she fell in love with hairdressing. She's from Korea. She fell in love with hairdressing doing like all of one team's haircuts for the Seoul Olympics in 1988. Oh my like, gosh, okay. that's so cool. And then, and then she was like, would you like to hear my philosophy on beauty? And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, look, beauty is a choice. And I was like, oh, okay, sick. I'm like a thousand percent on board for like whatever you're about to say. And she's like, my job is only to reveal the choice that any of my clients have made as they move through the world. And it's a choice you can make each day about whether you want people who look at you to feel better for having looked at you or feel worse for having looked at you. And what I try to do is just be a part of helping my clients um, make the choice that they choose to make. And I nearly wept because I'm <laughs> fucking exhausted and anxious and my brain's fucking fried. <laughs> As you know from other stuff that we're dealing with. <laughs> but it was just this completely magical moment that now, I, look, I'm now wearing the same haircut I always wear, but for some reason it's a more resonant and nice experience. And Shagar went back two weeks later. Normally I space it out six or eight weeks between a haircut. I was like, no, no, Peach, if you want... You know, if you want to project a certain way of being into the world, you are worth sitting down and hearing some more hairdresser philosophy. So I went back on the same day, same time, trying to get the same person four days ago. And it was someone else who didn't give a shit. So that was a little, <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit anticlimactic, but I still, the first experience was strong enough that, uh, that it stuck with me. So speaking of... Haircuts in a, in a roundabout way. Today's mm. film uh, features the act of scalping. Uh, I mean, which is, I mean, in a in a very roundabout, brutal, dark ages kind of way. A scalp <laughs> is a kind of haircut. I love that a haircut is just a very mild scalping. <laughs> this analogy. What well, is? You just go a bit deeper and then it's a scalping. That's, no, 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 I mean, no, no, it's no, the no. truth. Not a scalping. I was just coming for a haircut. <laughs> now, obviously, the, the idea of a scalping has, you know, huge cultural implications. But, Peach, you're a scholar mm. of history. Mm. Where, where do you see scalping coming from originally? Uh, I see it coming from uh, racist white American settlers making up nonsense about the indigenous community 
that is probably wrong. And I say that from a position of zero knowledge and just making it up, but it just feels like a um, boogeyman sort of story that would be used to entrench racist views and to alienate and spread hatred. So that's my guess, <laughs> completely made up guess on scalping, speaking as a historian. Not not a terrible guess, right? Um, uh, I think... I think- the more you know about history, the more you realise that things are always quite more, a lot more complicated and often the complete opposite of what you thought. That is the value of history, is that mm. it generally challenges popular assumptions um, mm. uh, because it's just always more nuanced than popular assumptions can ever be. Well, the problem with... Sorry, not to get too stuck in the weeds, but like the problem with history is like, oh, it's all made up. And you're like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> I still remember doing like... <laughs> Do it like coming into honest streams and it being like, surely there's some facts, you know, surely there's something we can point to. It's like, no, no, you just review secondary sources and you know, just read a few secondary sources. <laughs> Who knows what happened? <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> so, so scalping has actually kind of refers to really just taking some sort of a human trophy from a victim or victims that mm. you've killed, but usually the top of mm. the head. Uh, they think it was the top of the head rather than the whole head because, like we said in last week's episode about, you know, trying to eat human meat, mm. meat isn't a thing. You can't just cut meat off a freshly dead animal and then just eat it. It doesn't work yeah. like that. You have to drain it, right? And I imagine yeah. to chopping off a head as a trophy would be a logistical nightmare. I could not agree more. Could not agree more. So scalping, then again, all history is made up. So this is like maybe this is true. <laughs> yeah. uh, scalping comes from that. But uh, I'm looking up. Look, and, and again, look, the, our, our show is based on Wikipedia. I'm not going any deeper than that. But they go back to 1036 uh, to mm. England, and Earl Godwin, father of Harold Godwinson, was reportedly responsible for scalping his enemies. So. The first recorded usage of scalping is in England in 1036, which I think is hilarious. So you weren't off base with your idea of where scalping comes from. But in popular culture, generally, it's attributed to Native American culture, which is Mm. where we find ourselves today. Now, I this is also like I'm following on from last week because Mm. we did the platform. Again, thank you for everybody for suggesting it. I was really interested when I was watching it because I had no, uh, like I knew the platform was going to be like a, soci- a socialist anarchist scathing review of capitalism. syndicalist Sorry, I can never get it right. <laughs> I can never get it right. But I didn't realise there'd be so much cannibalism in it. And I realised we really haven't touched on a lot of cannibalism in our oh. podcast. And there's a lot, like there's, there's quite a lot of cannibal films. If we're doing fried green tomatoes this week, I'll be pretty surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was very close to doing Eli Roth's The Green Inferno, but then I went back over all the suggestions we'd had, and a couple of people have asked for a film uh, starring Kurt Russell called Bone Tomahawk that is actually pretty good, but has a lot of troubling. Uh, I guess uh, not. It's not. It's not that it's based on stereotypes, but it's based on a genre where. It's potentially like it's it's murky in its treatment of an entire people. I think you'll see uh, when we go through. So today, Peach, we are doing from 2015, Bone Tomahawk. Sounds beautiful. 
Evening. Civilized towns. You look a man direct in the face when you talk to him. This isn't comfortable. Well, it's not supposed to be. <laughs> she is my everything, and those savages have got her. God knows what they're doing to her. Every second that we delay. You know who did this? I don't have a name. How many of them do you think there are? It won't matter. You have no chance against any number of them. You had no cause. If you want to question my morals. Is Patrick Wilson that guy who we recognize in like, everything and never know his name? I was like, it's him. I, I, I was thinking about this. So this film has a lot of very recognizable faces, including probably the most recognizable face in that you'll never attribute his name to it, but you'll always see his face in everything Patrick Wilson. Oh, man, but also, okay, so, so another point about this film that I thought was interesting and, and one of the reasons mm. why I chose this out of the rest of the cannibal genre is uh, I've, I've seen it a little while ago, but I couldn't remember it beat for beat. And as I was reading through... There were moments that totally, you know, um, sparked a memory in my head, but there are other moments that were like, I can't remember this. So I went to YouTube, and if you sign... It's crazy that if you sign into YouTube, you can you can see anything, right? As long as you're over 18. There's this genre of YouTube videos that I've told you about before called, like, the kill count. Or in this case, I think the video I saw was the carnage count. They usually go for about five to six minutes, and they basically go, like... Number one, and then they show a death, and it's like, bing, number two. And so I watched the carnage count for this film just to remember, and oh my fucking god, Peach, we are going to get to a point in this film that is probably one of the most troubling. Even me just explaining this image to you is going to be one of the more troubling things uh, you've ever had occupy your brain in your life. So, but you know, one of the one of the things though, one of the reasons why I think that's interesting is when I was actually watching it, it's funny how easy it is to watch mm. gore outside of the constraints of the story. Like, story makes gore yes. feel so much worse. And I wonder, and again, I'm just adding this into the bucket of tricks to help you get over things. If you wanted to watch a particular movie, I wonder if it would be worth, especially if you already knew the story like Hereditary, yeah. if it would be watching worth the watching count. the carnage count of Hereditary first and then watching it. So you're ready for those moments. You know what they're going to look like. And the weird thing is, it's like, you see, and I, I end up watching the carnage count for an, another couple of films because I fell into a YouTube hole and it's weird like in in this way of watching it seeing a head get crushed seeing an eyeball get scooped out it just kind of like it's gross but it doesn't have the same it, it doesn't it doesn't scar you the way that it does in a film without the degree of immersion you're sort of able to just just skate over it i imagine and go like oh that was a bit gross yeah totally totally especially like if there, there definitely seems to be a genre of kills in the more gory films about people's heads getting crushed and watching it. And the more you watch it, it's like, at, at one point, like, it's almost like there's a cut. It's like, okay, get out of here. Let's put in the dummy. And then the dummy oh, goes yes, in it. and it's quite, and then there's just like blood and brains go everywhere. But they're always like, it just, it can't look real. And yeah, I, okay. I can't imagine anyone would ever like, and shut me down if I'm wrong. Will, I don't know if you're listening to this, but I'm sure no special effects team would ever spend weeks you know, creating a head crushing scene that is probably going to get cut out of the final cut anyway. <laughs> but the final thing I wanted to talk about with Bone Tomahawk mm. before we get there is you can kind of hear it in the name of it. Now, the idea of a bone tomahawk, so a tomahawk, you know, the the axe 
usually attributed to Native American culture, made out of bones, mm. so, you know, they're cannibals, is it, it, just mm. sort of indicative of, like, the troubling nature of the cannibal genre as a whole. Like, there are definitely cannibal films that aren't like this, but as a whole, they're about... A na- and even saying the word native, I feel weird, but they're, like, about a native tribe who are cut off from civilization and yeah, they eat yeah. people and as a tribe they're a bad guy. And I, I I I just can't see how that's not ever a troubling idea. I just can't see how you would ever be like, this is a cool thing for us to talk about. It's a funny thing, right? Like to to be like, do you know what's do you know what's scary? The other. And <laughs> and so I, I get having to manufacture the other being one obvious path to make a horror film work but the idea that you have to have a the other who is someone who can then be targeted in contemporary you know who, who can then be the subject of discrimination in a contemporary way i'd like it's just like surely there is more in making an artwork than just saying well i fucking made it like here's the thing i made like <laughs> you know surely you can take a bit more responsibility for what you're doing or, or i don't know if i'm requiring too much like if artists should just go do art and i listen to a lot of rap music where upsetting things are said of course but there's sort of an element of like well what is the behavior you are like like what are the views you are likely to uh, progress by putting this film out, um, and are they good? Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, and and I think you made a really good point there. It's like it doesn't mean like I'm not saying we cancel this genre or we cancel this film. It's just mm. it's it's purely a question: is like is the idea of this fine because it's part of a genre, or is it something that re- you know requires a bit more questioning? This is why they brought Patrick Wilson in, of course, to give it the sheen of respectability, to be like, hey, don't worry. Not just Patrick Wilson. So it's got Kurt Russell in the lead, which is, again, like, he's on the... Mm. Like, they were like, fuck. Like, it was a very small budget. It was uh, 1.8 mil. So they knew they had to push Kurt Mm. Russell as much as they could. Uh, Patrick Wilson, obviously. Matthew Fox, who was the father figure in Party of Five, the original Party of Five, not the remade Party of Five, that was, I think, about, like, a Mexican family during the Trump administration. David Arquette is in it in a cameo, like, <laughs> and almost no women. So just lots of dudes doing it up in the old uh, west, doing literal sort of whatever the game was called, cowboys. Cow- yeah, actual yeah. cowboys and Indians. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So mm. in the 1890s, two drifters, Purvis and Buddy, one of which is David Arquette, make a living robbing and killing travelers. Spooked by the sound of approaching horses. They hide in the hills and encounter a Native American burial site. Buddy is killed and Purvis escapes. And, like, if I remember correctly, killed by a slash of the throat from, like, a... Even, like, when the blades are made of stone. So it's all like, wow, they're, it's, it, 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 they're very much a super primitive tribe. And it's very much a... It really is a the other. It is the sort of what we would have what you would have seen as like a tribe in like 30s filmmaking yeah it feels like yeah 1930s disney is what i was gonna say is what i'm expecting yeah i'm expecting some very red lips and some dark skin and some ridiculous well no here's the thing so you you will see later on but and Mm. you might have seen in the trailer but they're basically covered in this sort of white ochre so again like even though they're just people, they're, they're sort mm. of meant to look like monsters. Yeah, anyway. So, 11 days later, Purvis arrives in the small town of Bright Hope and buries his loot. Chicory, 
the backup deputy notices him and reports him to Sheriff Frank Hunt, who's our hero, played by Kurt Russell. At the town saloon, Hunt confronts Purvis. When asked his name, Purvis gives an alias, then tries to escape, only to be shot in the leg by Sheriff Hunt. I do like, and, and it comes up in quite a few films, where the traditional bad guy in a story, like the looter or the highwayman or the robber, is actually just an innocent bystander for the real evil, you know, existential dread of the film. Yeah, that is fun. So Hunt sends John Broder to fetch the town's doctor. Meanwhile... Foreman Arthur O'Dwyer, who's Patrick Wilson, rests at home with a broken leg, tended by his wife, Samantha, the doctor's assistant. So there is a woman in there, and she's a doctor's assistant. Yes. Does she have a name? Does she speak to another woman who has a name? And if they do speak, do they speak about any subject other than a man? And uh, my, I suspect that uh, the Bechdel test is not going to be passed with this one. As the doctor is drunk... Bruder calls on Samantha and escorts her to the jail to treat Purvis, leaving Samantha with Purvis and his deputy, Nick. Hunt and the other then return home. That night, at a stable house, a stable boy is murdered. The murder is reported to Hunt, who investigates and finds the horses missing. He goes to the jail and finds it empty, with an arrow left behind. Hunt informs Arthur of the news. A local Native American man, and I think this is how they get away with the tribe, they're like, well, no, we've got a, we've got like a Native American man in the cast who's not in the tribe, so therefore... <laughs> We can punch this pile of ourselves. <laughs> They're also other to us. So a local Native American man called The Professor examines the arrow and links it to a troglodyte clan. He warns Hunt that they are a group of cannibalistic savages who inhabit the Valley of the Starving Men. Certain that Samantha, Nick, and Purvis had been captured by them, Hunt prepares to go after the clan along with Chicory and Bruder. Arthur, despite his broken leg, insists on accompanying them to find his wife. Now, I thought... That would really like... fuck me off. Like, it'd be like, look, like, I'm going to save your wife, right? It's like, no, I'm coming. It's like, look, I'm telling you that you would, like, that's the problem. You'll make me less likely to save your wife if you come. But, you know... Patrick Wilson, he, he does play flawed characters brilliantly, and this is another example of a, of a flawed character that I'm sure he breathes four dimensions of life into. And I don't know at what point in history this changed, but I thought kind of like racehorses, in the early days, if you broke a leg, it was basically like, well, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> you had a good run. <laughs> okay, so days into their ride, two strangers stumble across the camp. Fearing they are scouts for a raid, Bruder kills them. They set up a cold camp at another spot. I don't know what a cold camp is. I guess it's a smaller no camp. No fire, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Well done. So it's sort of secret, yeah. They set up a cold camp at another spot. However, during the night, a group of raiders ambushes them, injures Bruder's horse, and steals the rest. Bruder ref- Oh my god, fucking hell, am I psychic or what? Bruder regretfully puts down his horse the next day. Uh... When a, mm-hmm. And then a fight breaks out between Bruder and Arthur, exacerbating Arthur's leg wound. <laughs> Go home, Arthur. <laughs> Bloody hell. Chicory sets his leg and leaves him to recover while he, Hunt, and Bruder continue. Reaching the valley, the three men are injured by a volley of arrows. 
after killing two attackers and these are the What's attackers What's their plan? Like I love it's like guys <laughs> the three able-bodied people and one broken leg person here are going to storm this savage cannibalistic tribe and be like now guys please give back the prisoner you've taken or we'll beat you up like, wh- like what's their plan i think it's just kind of like i think literally their plan is it's like we'll get to the base and then we'll improvise <laughs> i think the um the writer of the platform was a script consultant like, yeah, they, um, the child's the message you guys the panacotta the panacotta's the message so yeah like i said so after killing two attackers hun and chicory retreat leaving bruder who is seriously injured and demands to be left behind bruder kills one attacker before being killed himself the attackers capture hunt and chicory and imprison them in their cave the men find Samantha, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, Samantha's in a very primitive sort of cage. Uh, and they're, they also, they also, sorry, they're all in these different sort of primitive, like, wooden stake cages. And they also find an okay. injured Nick imprisoned in a nearby cage. They inform Hunt that the tribesmen have already killed and eaten Purvis. Then they witness Nick removed from his cell, and this is the scene. Okay, so See. in front of them, and there's no camera pulling away, He's removed from his cell. He's stripped, so he's nude. He's then yep. brutally scalped, but scalped with, like, a very sort of blunt <coughs> bone tomahawk, so it, it takes a while. They stuff the scalp in his mouth for does some the, reason. Does the skin come... So, like, when I hear scalped, right, I feel like the skin with the hair gets peeled yes. away from the yes. bone. Yes, and it reveals... So the bone stays there. Yeah, no, okay. I think you take some of the bone... Oh. In this case, yeah, I think it's really just sort of the top of the skin, and it just takes it, yeah. Yeah, That's and so now do. I'm looking at the top of the skull. Yes. And the top of the skull stays attached to the person. So, at this point, they stuff it in his mouth, then they turn him upside down. <laughs> two, of, two of them hold him by the legs, so he's sort of like a Y-shaped, right? And then, because, again, the bone tomahawk's not that sharp, the leader of the tribe, who is very much... He's, <laughs> there's no name or anything, takes his bone tomahawk and just starts chopping to bisect him. So it's like, big chop. Big chop. <coughs> oh, Peach, I'm so sorry. Hang on. No, it's good. It's good. Blood is awesome, and it's great that we all have blood going through us. And I... And, look, there are some savage, primitive tribes that we just need to be confronted with a documentary made reflecting the real savagery of the primitive tribes. This is good. No, I want to keep learning. Let's do it. Anyway, so he eventually, after, like, maybe four or five chops, the the body comes into they they basically like together with the two holding it they they tear the body in two all these bits like fall out of it and then they eat him alive um, they eat him raw well hang on a lie like he's been split well, in sorry, half sorry sorry they eat him there they're like but that would be so difficult to eat it would be so it also tough kind of again it kind of doesn't make sense because like if you're a cannibalistic tribe and yes. you've been this way for a long time. You'd probably yes. have some practices about the best way to, you know, to harvest the meat, and then you know have like have some, yep, ready to go. But then obviously, like I imagine some of the organs you could probably dab straight away, and then so, you know, Shag, you you and I are running a cannibal abattoir, which you can use your um, marketing skills to rename to probably the Cannabattoir or something like that. So if people, if you endorse that name, I hope you do. So you and I are running the Cannabattoir. Um, people come in to be killed by us to be turned into food. I think we want to keep them clean and off the ground, kill them promptly, 
lift up the body by the legs, cut their throat very, very wide open so as much blood pumps out as possible while the heart's still doing its job. Then, like, you know, treating it like a piece of beef. Then we want to skin it. Then we want to hang it for a while. And if we don't do that, then I think the, the meat would be so tough as to be indigestible. And then let alone... Isn't it called the pluck? Like when you're slaughtering an animal and you're removing various things. Like I don't want to eat a dead human who's still got the stomach and the intestines and shit in there. Like I'm going to get sick. Like how does this tribe survive eating raw meat? And and I think this is where <sighs> the issue with these treatment of, you know, mm. these tribes as like, you know, basically like animals where it's like it doesn't make any sense because even if this tribe was cut off from civilization, had essentially kept these practices for, you know, hundreds of years, they would have developed, like you said, some sort of cannabitoire system. You know, one yes. part of the cave would be where they'd store, like, the human meat that they were making. Exactly. This film's basically an ad for the cannabitoire, sort of before... <laughs> it's like, don't do this. <laughs> Are you still getting your ca- human meat this way? <laughs> and you see, in order to market the cannabitoire, Gary Vaynerchuk would say, give, give value first. So we just have a podcast just generally about being cannibals and just, you know, the issues that come up. And then if people, you know, if that led people to get curious about the cannabitoid, I'd be like, yeah, you can give us a call. We'll talk about how we work with the cannabitoid. We just want to give some value and hopefully, hopefully it helps you guys. Anyway, so after they leave, uh, Samantha estimates the number of hostile cannibals to be Why around 12. Why didn't they 12. kill and eat Samantha? Sorry? Well, no, because they she's ate just one there at the cage. time. They did one, they're doing them sort of one by one. But she's been sitting there for three days. Yes, and yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I don't know their schedule, but it probably <laughs> it probably makes a bit more sense in the film. But yeah, there the were procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> there were twelve, but now there's been nine because they three have been killed by Hunt's posse. So Hunt, remember, is Kurt Russell. He's the hero. Mm. Realizes he has some opium tincture he confiscated from Arthur earlier to prevent him from overusing it. Arthur being the super annoying character who was going along because he had a broken leg. Uh, They trick several tribesmen into drinking it. However, only one overdoses and dies while another becomes unconscious. Meanwhile, Arthur wakes up, follow the men's trail and discovers the valley. He kills two tribesmen and notices an object embedded in their windpipes. After cutting one out, he realizes that this is how they communicate because they have a whistle in their windpipe. So they don't actually speak. They embed this whistle in their windpipe and that's how they communicate. What he, the fuck? He blows what on it. What the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> no, but this is like... It's, it's, that's, that's who they... That's the tribe. They, they eat people, they wear white, and they use a whistle to communicate. It's actually pretty smart when you think about it. Uh, uh, I don't know what to say about any of this. These are people who've got human viscera from raw intestines on these fingers conducting throat surgery <laughs> with fucking bone tomahawks. Is there like a bone scalpel as well that they're using to get? Bloody hell. Anyway, once he realizes it's a whistle, he blows on it, luring another tribesman close, then kills him as well. So, oh, so he's got to like reach into the dead man's throat, pull out the whistle. Basically, yeah. <laughs> So in this is the, the cave- least hygienic movie ever. This is oh. a very pre-COVID movie. Oh. <laughs> Everyone else oh. has blood and stuff all over everything. In the cave, realizing two of their men were poisoned, the leader grows angry. He and another tribesman pull Hunt from his cell. Cut. This is gross too. Cut open Ugh. his abdomen and shove the opium flask 
that he had brought with him um, mm. that they had just heated in the fire into the wound. So they basically cut this big slice into his chest, well, just below his yes. chest, into his tummy, and just put this, like, white-hot, like, alcohol flask into his didn't he pass out from pain after his stomach was cut open? Oh, he's kind of screaming, right. and, like, we're screaming because we're the audience because we're feeling it too. Okay. Okay, cool. Gosh, these tribes are so primitive. Oh, it's also pretty annoying the way that the the leader sort of picks up the gun in a way that's sort of like, what is this? You know, what does it do? Um, and then manages to shoot Hunt in the arm and the abdomen uh, with the rifle. But then Arthur arrives and kills one of the tribesmen while Hunt decapitates the leader. And actually, like, this is also a super gross scene with one of the tribe's bone tomahawks. Arthur frees Samantha and Chicory while a mortally wounded Hunt stays behind with a rifle. He promises to kill the surviving cannibals when they return to prevent them from terrorizing Bright Hope. Which again, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of like you, like, yes, you've been shot a couple of times. Yes, this thing has been shoved into your like abdominal cavity. But at the same time, it's like, do you really have to give up that easily? Like, I, I, and also it's the 1890s, so, you know, medical help is not advanced in the sort of the, the outposts of the West, but still, it always seems to cop out when characters too. do this. Yeah, he'd you're be right. Super, he'd be buggered. Like, <laughs> like he'd be like, "Oh man, <laughs> how far?" You know, it's a long walk back. Yeah, to be um, to be serious. But I also think it's funny when characters in these films just go, "You got it. You, you stay here and die. This is the last we'll ever see of you." We'll oh, go do you mean the ourselves. survivors being like, "Oh, that's really cool of you to do that." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> But to get back into like 16 year old boy mode, ready to die is like the most attractive character trait for any um, stereotypical 16 year old boy, including a stereotypical former 16 year old boy. It's like there's something about it of like, oh man, like, whoa, whoa. I'm sure there are a million examples of it happening in cinema. I can't conjure any of them of being like, don't worry about it, you guys. I'm going to embrace death for the greater good. It's a nice, lazy, romantic sentiment. I think so, it works. So as the three leave the cave without Hunt... Oh, fuck, I forgot about this. This is, this is the other <laughs> part of the film. They see two pregnant women who are blinded uh, and have all their limbs amputated. What? And there's, it's just like... It's left to you as the audience to be like, what's happening here? And they're alive. So on their journey out, Arthur blows the tribesman's whistle and with no response, they continue to exit. At a distance from the cave, they hear three gunshots implying that Sheriff Hunt had killed the remaining members of the tribe. I do like in this film how it's kind of like a carnage counter where like they've they explicitly go, okay, there were twelve, we've killed like we've killed three, yeah. so there's nine left, and they just constantly update you with who's left. So when you hear those three gunshots at the end, you're like, cool, that's it, that's done. Uh, at this point, Chicory acknowledges the gunshots with a half-hearted smile. <laughs> <laughs> They're assuming each of the three gunshots was accurate and killed the person they shot. Totally. Which is a serious assumption. And also, 1890s guns, I don't think, were the most accurate weapons 
in the history of warfare. In fairness, they're probably more accurate than 1880s guns, in fairness, but worse than 1900s guns, I agree. But I also love that it ends with Chicory giving a half-hearted smile and then dropping the rock he'd been carrying as a weapon to signify that he now finally feels safe from the tribe that wields Bone Tomahawks. That's the end of the film. Bone Tomahawk from 2015. Peach... Did it deserve the four hundred thousand dollars it made off the one point eight million dollar budget? <laughs> it was made for which most one. of which may, most of which would have gone to Kurt Russell and Patrick Wilson, or maybe Patrick Wilson's just paid by Hollywood. Maybe he just gets a salary, and it's like maybe he is. So in the same way that everything's become a subscription, maybe as a director you can sign up for like Net Wilson, and it's like he can just appear in your film. And you just have to pay, like, you know, nine ninety five a month. Look, Shag, as we've said before, um, every uh, piece of knowledge I have about movie making comes from the now, <laughs> the now disgraced entourage. And apparently you, do, <laughs> apparently you do one film for them, Shag, and you do one film for you. And so apparently this is the film, this, this may well be the film for you that Patrick Wilson did. But I think it's a really bad film. Like, uh, uh. <laughs> it's actually a really good. Like it. Like uh, all the troubling content aside, and you know the the Bechdel failure aside, uh, it's it's an enjoyable. F- it's also really long. It goes for like two and a half hours. Oh, I thought part of the strength of a horror movie was that you're out of there like eighty eight minutes. It should be. It absolutely should be. To me, the like pregnant women whose children must now be born just onto the dirt and so they must listen to die, like is just an unnecessarily, utterly bleak, completely over the top piece of cruelty to you you know I don't know, to the audience, certainly to those characters obviously. Um and it just really centered into fuck this zone. Fuck that movie. I'm glad <laughs> the late show, right? So, you know, like the like the classic Australian sketch comedy program of the early '90s. Um, I was given the DVDs for like my 21st birthday, like 90 years ago, whenever that happened. And <laughs> Rob 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 Sitch in the voiceover reveals that they only started making money when they started selling the videos, the best bits of the late show afterwards, and they made 400 grand. And Shag. I think that was 400 grand better spent um, than the 400 grand that moviegoers apparently spent on Bone Tomahawk. Boo, Bone Tomahawk. Go home. Uh, This was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?